Welcome to the Leadership Mindset Podcast with me, Tony Brooks, where we look to revolutionize your leadership mindset by changing how you think and see your world, enabling you to do the right things and grow significantly as a leader. Welcome back to the Leadership Mindset Podcast series. What I'm going to be focusing on over the next three podcast episodes is actually like a mini series about applying psychology in leadership and business. So I'm going to be sharing some theoretical areas and areas of research in psychology over the years going right back into the 50s because some of the old research still has value but applying it in ways that will be helpful for you in a leadership role in business in general. So without further ado let's go on to the first area and I'm going to talk about the positive psychology movement. Now this was started in 1998 when Martin Seligman took over as the president of the American Psychology Association, then he started to look at how psychology can be used to look how we can more, I guess, fulfill more of our potential and um, experience life in, in a good way, you know, our well-being and happiness. Now, before that time, really, psychology had been pretty much fixated with problems of the mind. And obviously, this goes very much back to the Freudian model and a lot of our you know, perceptions of psychology is sort of lying on the analyst couch talking about our childhood. Um, but I thought that the positive psychology movement was such a positive step in 1998. And I must admit, for a number of years now, I've been a member of the International Positive Psychology Association because I believe psychology has so much good it can bring to the world of sport, business life in general. I think sport very much is picking that up with psychology. And one of the models that Seligman put forward was the PERMA model, P-E-R-M-A. And what that really is about is looking at your psychology and looking at how you can improve um, in different areas. Like for the P, for example, is positive emotional states and feeling good and what psychology can bring in that area. The E is about being engaged with what you're doing and the example of flow you may have heard of being in your flow but it is more about doing things that really resonate with you and when you're fully in your flow and engaged with what you're doing the r is for relationships and connection and how you can use your emotional intelligence to improve that as well and the m uh, is the impermanence, is the meaning and purpose that we have in life and often i'm talking to leaders not only about the purpose of the business and the you know from a leadership perspective what it's what's it all about but also personal life as well i was talking to a leader a couple of weeks back and saying what's it all about for you you know what's your what's your long-term game personally what is this all about for you really as well as being fixated on the business and what you do for your customers what what do we as leaders of business people want it to be about and then finally the a is all about achievements and accomplishment and we, I, you know, I personally believe that we need to come from a place of being good enough. Um, but actually, it's good to grow all the time. And I've come to the topic of growth in a little while. But I think as human beings, we like to see achievement and ticking things off and, and achieving goals and accomplishments and improving. So there you go. That's the PERMA model. And I think there are a number of lessons around that for us all, really, in terms of where we might want to focus to improve our well-being and happiness. And I'm going to link on to another area that Seligman talks about, which is the difference between pessimism and optimism. 
and how we process, particularly actually, how we process things that go wrong. Now, we are, as, as I record this podcast, it is just coming up to the one year anniversary in the UK of when we, when we went down into uh, lockdown in 2020 because of the pandemic. And there are a lot of challenges facing us as individuals, as groups of people, as businesses. And it's how we deal with those that will define whether we have a more pessimistic or optimistic outlook, a subject, subject I've often talked about, optimism. So if you process things that go wrong in a more pessimistic way, then you're more likely to see them as stable. And that means that they will continue on over time. You also will see that they are more global. So it's not just this particular instance of something that has gone wrong, but you start to see it um, and, and actually sort of almost allow it to infect other aspects of your life and work as well, because you start to see it as a global challenge and problem. And finally, if you're more pessimistic in nature, then you will take things on as being more about your internal capability and skills as well. And I guess being quite self-critical of yourself. Whereas if you are more optimistic in outlook, in the way you process challenges, then you will see the things that happen as being unstable. So just because it's bad today doesn't mean it's going to be bad over time. You'll also see the particular challenge in a very specific way. So it is just about the specific problem, not letting it infect other aspects of work and life. And finally, if you're optimistic in outlook, you often look for external reasons why there might be a problem rather than putting it necessarily down to yourself. And flipping it the other way around, if things that are good happen, if you're optimistic in outlook, you'll tend to take them on as more personal in nature that you know you've been responsible for those positive things and that they are more of a permanent part of life really ongoing. So it's all really about how we approach problems and, and to a degree how we approach good stuff, but I think particularly how we approach problems. And I say it is moving from that stable global internal place which is very much part of cognitive behavioural therapy. I must admit I've had cognitive behavioural therapy in, my past, in the past myself. Must be 2007, I think it was, 14 years ago. Big part of CBT, which you've probably heard of in therapy, is about helping you realise when you're dropping into this way of viewing problems as being stable, global and internal and moving to a more a place where you're optimistic, where you see them as unstable, specific and external. And we need to remember all the time that the more we become conscious of what's happening, the way we're processing events that go on around us, the more power we have over them. And the more we can pause and say, I am viewing this, let's say for example, I'm viewing this in a, in a global way. There's a problem happening. I'm starting to let it affect how I'm seeing other things happening rather than localizing it as a specific problem. Similarly with the other two aspects, stable internal. So by raising your consciousness and actually pausing, allowing yourself some space to take another path, to take another judgment of what this problem is about, that's where it will become more helpful for you. So we'll be talking here all about the positive psychology movement, but the, the lesson really to go away with from business is that it's a daily choice. How are you processing the things that go wrong and also help your other the other people in your organisation, the other people in your teams, if you notice that they're getting into that 
way of processing that they're looking at things as stable, global, internal. Help them say, hang on a minute, I think what you're doing here is seeing this as something that's going to persist over time. And actually, it's not. It, it's something that will pass, for example. So there you go. There's the first aspect today. And it's all around the positive psychology movement and some of the things we can take away from that. The next area I want to talk about is realistic conflict theory and in-out group behaviour. Now, this concept of in-out group behaviour actually originated from some research done by Muzaffar Sheriff and Carolyn Wood Sheriff in 1954. And there's some debate about who actually coined the term realistic conflict theory or realistic group conflict theory, because also seen Donald Campbell, the psychologist's name attached to it as well. But I think one of the most famous pieces of research is that carried out in 54, and it's called the Robbers Cave Experiment. And in that, the two sheriffs got a group of 22 uh, boys together and actually put them, first of all, into a group in a scenario where they were doing some practical work. And they actually split them into two. As the first phase, they divided them into groups. And then what they did was created friction by having competitive tasks to do. And what it meant they started to identify more positively with other members of their in-group within that one of the two groups they were in but they started to then identify more negatively with people who were in the opposing out-group and it happened quite uh, quite quickly and I think this is fascinating you could look at this in all aspects of life you know even I remember the football hooliganism that was really prevalent in the 70s and I'm not saying that it's completely gone now but when I used to be a sort of young boy going to football, there was that in-group, out-group behaviour in sporting fans and what have you. So we've got the first phase where you split people into groups. Just by the very nature of starting to split people, you can start to have that different view of each other. And then in the second phase of the robber's cave experiment, they introduced competitive tasks and created friction. And what they saw was this effect that they were, you know, people were identifying them a lot more closely and building friendships a lot more with people in their in-group, but were opposing the out-group, people in the out-group. And then in the third part of the Robbers Cave experiment, they actually looked at integrating people by actually getting them to do tasks together across the two groups. And what they found then was that this started to decrease the tensions that were found between the two groups by having collaborative tasks to work on. So even a fairly simple experiment, and I say an experiment done uh, many years ago, over 50 years ago, over 60 years ago in fact, that you can quite easily create these divisions but then you can also look to integrate people as well. And I think it's got a lot of applications in the business world and you know, for example, I think it is being mindful. I've actually, actually I've seen this over time. Just something really simple, like having different teams split over floors. There was one business I worked with. They were based in offices where they had three floors, and they split their teams across the three levels. And just the very nature of having different teams on in different geographical areas in the offices, it seemed to create more division between the teams as well. 
And I've also seen this as well. If you've got maybe two, even on a more local level, if you've got two people who are finding it difficult to maybe work together and relate together, if you can find a cooperative task for them to work on together, um, and, and maybe you know it's something about going off and working on a project together and presenting back to the whole company, the whole team, then creating that unity, that cohesion between just two people can really get away from some of the difficulties and com maybe comp competition that's going on between two people, but certainly in a wider sense, be really looking at that about how internally there may be division and tensions between the different parts of the business. And there's all sorts of ways, again, of either getting people to work together more closely geographically. So you don't necessarily have to have teams located together. You can split teams and have people working more closely together. But also get people to see also that, um, I guess, that wider vision of where the company's going and almost make the in-group the whole company rather than making the in-group one of the teams and, and creating too much competition internally. But seeing what you are doing, as, and as a leader especially, I think if you can sell the grander vision about where you are going as a business and that you're all on board in that same direction and it's, you know, it's, it's about winning together, then you can create that in-group behaviour within the organisation as a whole, rather than having split across teams. And I think it's interesting that we see this kind of example with in-group, out-group behaviour in relation to diversity and how we're looking to create more diversity in workforces and get people engaged more across those diverse groups. And in a massive way, I think the global pandemic has been interesting because what we've seen, not perfectly, but we've seen countries coming together more um, to work on vaccination programmes, to look at policies across different countries, because we're all fighting a common enemy at the moment with the coronavirus. So some fascinating examples from the research in the 50s from Muzaffar Sheriff and Carolyn Wood Sheriff and how we can take these very simple divisions that can occur and what we might be able to do in business and leading teams as a result of that. So my third area in relation to psychology and leadership and what we can learn from psychology and applying leadership comes from one of my favorites actually, which is Carol Dweck and the whole area of growth mindset and fixed mindset, which really, I guess, um, was crystallized in, a, in her book in 2006 called Mindset. And if you've not come across this before, I guess fundamentally, we all exist on, on a spectrum in terms of where we, where we are with relation to growth mindset and fixed mindset. Now, a, a growth mindset will be about the fact that we are not fixed. We are able to change through effort, through teaching and learning, through persistence. The fixed mindset view is one that we are, we have very fixed traits and we are born with certain attributes and it's difficult to move beyond those. And actually, the reality is that none of us are purely in the growth mindset or fixed mindset camp. We will find ourselves moving in and out of them. Maybe certain periods of time we might find ourselves more in one area than the other. But I think what's important is for ourselves as individuals and the people that we work with, it is about finding ways to keep moving ourselves more and more into growth mindset camp. Now, what are the kind of things that can show up? in terms of growth mindset and fixed mindset. 
Carol Dweck talked about a number of areas. The first one, as I say, skills, which is, are you born with skills? Are they fixed, as in a fixed mindset view, or able, are you able to grow and develop your skills through hard work, through application, through learning from others, through acquiring more and more knowledge? And obviously the, the reality for very much for me is that skills can be developed and it fits very much with the model from neuroscience that we we are able to continually create new neural pathways and, and change our neurology. The second one is how we deal with challenges. And I was relating to challenges a moment ago when I was talking about the positive psychology movement. But within the growth mindset, fixed mindset model, a fixed mindset will think of challenges as something that should be avoided, that can expose our lack of skills and that we would tend to give up on easily. Whereas if you apply more of a growth mindset for yourself, then you see challenges as something that part and part of part and parcel of life, of the daily experience, and should be embraced, and they're an opportunity to grow and learn from, and that we can be more persistent through challenges. In a fixed mindset view, how do we look at effort? It's it's bad effort being unnecessary. You can either do it or you can't, and if it's if it's going to require effort, then best avoided. Whereas a growth mindset would would view effort as an essential. Uh, part of experience really and a path to becoming better and better and growing at what you do that path to realizing your full potential then we look at feedback and in a in a fixed mindset view when we when we receive feedback we may quickly go into a more defensive way of processing things and take it personally whereas if you go into a growth mindset then you'll see feedback as useful something to learn from and something that will allow you to improve. So there are some different aspects there of fixed mindset and growth mindset for you to think about. And I've started to touch there on how you might deal with those personally. And again, I come back to this issue of awareness and consciousness, because I think that the more aware you are of where you are at a particular moment. So have I gone more into a fixed mindset way of processing things that are happening or have I gone into a growth mindset? Because the more conscious and aware you are, again, the more able you are to make choices. And so if you notice that you're starting to see yourself in a fixed way in terms of your skill set, then you can quickly say, hang on a minute, there are, there are many ways in which I can develop my skills further. So you might be telling yourself, I'm not creative, I'm not logical, I'm not organised. But I often see people improve more and more. And yes, some of us have more of a predisposition to be more creative, more organised, whatever it might be. But you can develop these skills as well. You can find tools and procedures and processes and systems that will enable you to get better in all sorts of skills. So it's being aware of that. And the important thing with fixed and growth mindset as well, this concept from Carol Dweck, for me, is as leaders, the leaders of you out there, the owners of businesses, it is about observing other people in your organisation, other people in your teams, and noticing when they, particularly when they're dropping into a fixed mindset, helping them to see that and helping them to move into a growth mindset as well. And so again, if you, and and you can help a lot with things like feedback. So if you're gonna deliver feedback to somebody, you can, what I call, pre-frame it. So you can say to people, 
look, I'm going to give you some feedback here. And what I don't want you to do is start taking it personally and get defensive. Because actually, the reason I'm giving you this feedback is you're doing a great job. But I think there are a couple of elements where you could get even better. And this feedback is designed to do that for you and help you improve further. And you see where we're actually almost in the language we use, looking to trigger somebody's growth mindset rather than put them into a corner. Because if you go into somebody and say, you screwed up on that particular project and I need to give you some feedback on where you went wrong, that's naturally gonna put somebody in a corner. I think we could all sense that we would all potentially go into a corner and become more defensive with that. So a really brilliant concept, this, this idea of growth mindset, fixed mindset from Carol Dweck, and how we can become more aware both within ourselves but also look to make other people aware. When we're going into those fixed mindset territory and reinforcing and moving ourselves more into a growth mindset place as we go along in all those different areas, feedback, challenges, mistakes, all those kind of things. So the fourth and final area for today's podcast episode on applying psychology and leadership is about the area of conformity. And some of the most um, I guess fascinating experiments uh, originated right back in the 50s by Solomon Ash. And in fact, his really famous ones were in 1951. And in simple terms, this would be a lot uh, easier to explain visually, but we're on a podcast, so I'll do my best to, to describe it. But what he did was got a group of people together in experimental conditions. And interestingly enough, there was only one uh, innocent participant in the experiment. All the rest of the people had been pre, uh, you know, pre-briefed really on what they were supposed to do. And um, what happened was, um, Ash would show a series of images uh, in terms of line length. So he would have three lines of different lengths, um, which would be labelled A, B, C, and then you had to make a decision as to look at another line and say which one was it the same size as and so for example you'd have abc and it would be the first one that was a particular length and then when you showed them another line then that line actually would be the same length as a but what happened with the stooges with the people who'd been pre-briefed they were told to mistakenly say b which actually, if you looked at it, and if you could see this, you can look this up on, on, on the internet. If you looked at it, it's pretty obvious that B was not the right answer and it was different in length to the, the one that was, that was given. But what happened? What was found was that in multiple experiments and doing all sorts of variations of this, 75% of the naive, innocent people who went into the experiments were actually judging with the crowd who were saying the wrong answer. So this almost this need to conform can create difficulties in that we we almost probably see that it's dif it's different and we're thinking why are they choosing that but we don't want to stand out so we conform to so 75% went with the crowd. Now, here's the interesting piece. There's, there are a number of variations on this experiment. But when a dissenter was included in the group, so you'd got the majority of people saying that um, 
the line length answer was let's say for example b but it was very obvious it was different if you had one dissenter before the innocent party was giving their answer and that dissenter said no no it's definitely a that is the right length then we only got five percent of the naive participants agreeing with the crowd so just one dissenter when that dissenter was giving the answer that was obviously right led people to then go along with the dissenter with the correct answer so what do we take away from this i think what we take away from this is that we we do have this innate tendency to want to conform and from a psychological perspective we can examine human nature and there is this need for conformity and that can override that group pressure can override obvious facts that appear to be so obvious to us and correct to us but we can be that can be overridden by our need to conform so what can you take away from this from you know from a business perspective i would say that first of all we can use this to our advantage to a certain degree because if there is a need for conformity then the more recommendations and testimonials and the more positive stuff that we can get said about us on social media for example about our businesses the services we provide then people will be more likely because of this social proof to actually uh, go along with or invest in one of our services or products because again that conformity influence can start to take hold in that they see a lot of other people saying this was good so there's almost that conformity influence that pushes us along this is why i've worked a lot particularly the last 12 months actually and i'm now up to 46 recommendations on linkedin and we'll talk about those on linkedin posts and what have you because if somebody else comes along who's interested in my service and they see 46 other people who are saying good things then that conformity factor can play a part where do we need to so just these are just a couple of examples for you and um, where can we be more mindful of it internally i think it's about meetings and i think that the problem can be if you pull everyone together into a classic what could be called a brainstorm meeting or you know a meeting where you're putting ideas around then if you get two or three people quickly coming up with ideas that are similar in nature or one person saying it and some other people agreeing with it there may well then be a tendency to conform to that view so let's say for example as well you've got a meeting called to look at a problem if you start the meeting for example as a leader as well by saying i think we've got a problem and this is my thoughts on how it may well be solved and then you ask the group you're more likely to get conformity around your own opinion in the first place than if you allow people to free think more. So one of the things you can do with meetings, whether they be brainstorm, creativity, project um, meetings, problem solving meetings, is actually to ask people to think in isolation first. So you can invite them to the meeting and say, I want you to think about and submit some ideas before you come to the meeting. And what that then is doing is negating that tendency, that innate tendency to want to conform to other people and not want to stand out. Because if they're doing it individually first and then you bring into the pool all the ideas and thoughts that people have had, they've done it without any of the peer pressure and conformity pressure 
that was there in the first place. So there you go, some fascinating research and an experiment from ASH in the 1950s. And a couple of things you might want to take away from that, both in terms of how you externally take that um, and play that to your advantage, but how you internally counter the effects of it, particularly in meetings. So I trust you've really, if, if you're interested in psychology and how you can apply leadership, I trust you've found these first four areas an interesting examination of theory and research and then how you can apply them in day-to-day -day, uh, business life and in your role as a leader both in terms of how you lead yourself but also how you lead other people and I'll be back for part two next month when we look at further psychological research experiments and theory and again how you can apply those in your role as a leader and in business in general If you want to explore your leadership mindset in more detail, why not complete our free leadership diagnostic at thetonybrooks.com and subscribe to this podcast to join us for future podcasts.